Chapter Sixteen, Part Four of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume Two, by Edward Gibbon. Chapter Sixteen, Conduct Towards the Christians from Nero to Constantine, Part Four. When Valerian was consul for the third, and Gallienus for the fourth time, Paternus, proconsul of Africa, summoned Cyprian to appear in his private council chamber. He there acquainted him with the imperial mandate which he had just received, that those who had abandoned the Roman religion should immediately return to the practice of the ceremonies of their ancestors. Cyprian replied without hesitation that he was a Christian and a bishop, devoted to the worship of the true and only deity, to whom he offered up his daily supplications for the safety and prosperity of the two emperors, his lawful sovereigns. With modest confidence he pleaded the privilege of a citizen, in refusing to give any answer to some invidious and indeed illegal questions which the proconsul had proposed. A sentence of banishment was pronounced as the penalty of a Cyprian's disobedience, and he was conducted without delay to Cerebus, a free and maritime city of Zugitania, in a pleasant situation, a fertile territory, and at the distance of about forty miles from Carthage. The exiled bishop enjoyed the conveniences of life and the consciousness of virtue. His reputation was diffused over Africa and Italy, an account of his behavior was published for the edification of the Christian world, and his solitude was frequently interrupted by the letters, the visits, and the congratulations of the faithful. On the arrival of a new proconsul in the province, the fortune of Cyprian appeared for some time to wear a still more favorable aspect. He was recalled from banishment, and though not yet permitted to return to Carthage, his own gardens in the neighborhood of the capital were assigned for the place of his residence. At length, exactly one year after Cyprian was first apprehended, Galerius Maximus, proconsul of Africa, received the imperial warrant for the execution of the Christian teachers. The bishop of Carthage was sensible that he should be singled out for one of the first victims, and the frailty of nature tempted him to withdraw himself, by a secret flight, from the danger and the honor of martyrdom. But soon recovering that fortitude which his character required, he returned to his gardens, and patiently expected the ministers of death. Two officers of rank, who were entrusted with that commission, placed Cyprian between them in a chariot, and as the proconsul was not then at leisure, they conducted him, not to a prison, but to a private house in Carthage, which belonged to one of them. An elegant supper was provided for the entertainment of the bishop, and his Christian friends were permitted for the last time to enjoy his society, whilst the streets were filled with a multitude of the faithful, anxious and alarmed at the approaching fate of their spiritual father. In the morning he appeared before the tribunal of the proconsul, who, after informing himself of the name and situation of Cyprian, commanded him to offer sacrifice, and pressed him to reflect on the consequences of his disobedience. The refusal of Cyprian was firm and decisive, and the magistrate, when he had taken the opinion of his counsel, pronounced with some reluctance the sentence of death. It was conceived in the following terms, that Thascius Cyprianus should be immediately beheaded as the enemy of the gods of Rome, and as the chief and ringleader of a criminal association, which he had seduced into an impious resistance against the laws of the most holy emperors, Valerian and Gallienus. 
the manner of his execution was the mildest and least painful that could be inflicted on a person convicted of any capital offence nor was the use of torture admitted to obtain from the bishop of carthage either the recantation of his principles or the discovery of his accomplices as soon as the sentence was pronounced a general cry of we will die with him arose at once among the listening multitude of christians who waited before the palace gates the generous effusions of their zeal and their affection were neither serviceable to cyprian nor dangerous to themselves he was led away under a guard of tribunes and centurions without resistance and without insult to the place of his execution a spacious and level plain near the city which was already filled with a great number of spectators his faithful presbyters and deacons were permitted to accompany their holy bishop they assisted him in laying aside his upper garment spread linen on the ground to catch the precious relics of his blood and received his orders to bestow five-and-twenty pieces of gold on the executioner the martyr then covered his face with his hands and at one blow his head was separated from his body his corpse remained during some hours exposed to the curiosity of the gentiles but in the night it was removed and transported in a triumphal procession with a splendid illumination to the burial place of the christians the funeral of cyprian was publicly celebrated without receiving any interruption from the roman magistrates and those among the faithful who had performed the last offices to his person and his memory were secure from the danger of inquiry or punishment it is remarkable that of so great a multitude of bishops in the province of africa cyprian was the first who was esteemed worthy to obtain the crown of martyrdom it was in the choice of cyprian either to die a martyr or to live an apostate but on the choice depended the alternative of honor or infamy could we suppose that the bishop of carthage had employed the profession of the christian faith only as the instrument of his avarice or ambition it was still incumbent on him to support the character he had assumed and if he possessed the smallest degree of manly fortitude rather to expose himself to the most cruel tortures than by a single act to exchange the reputation of a whole life for the abhorrence of his christian brethren and the contempt of the gentile world but if the zeal of cyprian was supported by the sincere conviction of the truth of those doctrines which he preached the crown of martyrdom must have appealed to him as an object of desire rather than of terror it is not easy to extract any distinct ideas from the vague though eloquent declamations of the fathers or to ascertain the degree of immortal glory and happiness which they confidently promised to those who were so fortunate as to shed their blood in the cause of religion they inculcated with becoming diligence that the fire of martyrdom supplied every defect and expiated every sin that while the souls of ordinary christians were obliged to pass through a slow and painful purification the triumphant sufferers entered into the immediate fruition of eternal bliss where in the society of the patriarchs the apostles and the prophets they reigned with christ and acted as his assessors in the universal judgment of mankind the assurance of a lasting reputation upon earth a motive so congenial to the vanity of human nature often served to animate the courage of the martyrs the honors which rome or athens bestowed on those citizens who had fallen in the cause of their country were cold and unmeaning demonstrations of respect when compared with the ardent gratitude and devotion which the primitive church expressed towards the victorious champions of the faith the annual commemoration of their virtues and sufferings was observed as a sacred ceremony 
and at length terminated in religious worship. Among the Christians who had publicly confessed their religious principles, those who, as it very frequently happened, had been dismissed from the tribunal or the prisons of the pagan magistrates, obtained such honors as were justly due to their imperfect martyrdom and their generous resolution. The most pious females courted the permission of imprinting kisses on the fetters which they had worn, and on the wounds which they had received. Their persons were esteemed holy, their decisions were admitted with deference, and they too often abused, by their spiritual pride and licentious manners, the preeminence which their zeal and intrepidity had acquired. Distinctions like these, whilst they display exalted merit, betray the inconsiderable number of those who suffered, and of those who died, for the profession of Christianity. The sober discretion of the present age will more readily censure than admire, but can more easily admire than imitate the fervor of the first Christians, who, according to the lively expressions of Sopicius Severus, desired martyrdom with more eagerness than his own contemporaries solicited a bishopric. The epistles which Ignatius composed as he was carried in chains through the cities of Asia breathed sentiments the most repugnant to the ordinary feelings of human nature. He earnestly beseeches the Romans that when he should be exposed in the amphitheatre, they would not, by their kind but unseasonable intercession, deprive him of the crown of glory, and he declares his resolution to provoke and irritate the wild beasts which might be employed as the instruments of his death. Some stories are related of the courage of martyrs, who actually performed what Ignatius had intended, who exasperated the fury of the lions, pressed the executioner to hasten his office, cheerfully leaped into the fires which were kindled to consume them, and discovered a sensation of joy and pleasure in the midst of the most exquisite tortures. Several examples have been preserved of a zeal impatient of those restraints which the emperors had provided for the security of the church. The Christians sometimes supplied by their voluntary declaration the want of an accuser, rudely disturbed the public service of paganism, and rushing in crowds round the tribunal of the magistrates, called upon them to pronounce and to inflict the sentence of the law. The behavior of the Christians was too remarkable to escape the notice of the ancient philosophers, but they seem to have considered it with much less admiration than astonishment. Incapable of conceiving the motives which sometimes transported the fortitude of believers beyond the bounds of prudence or reason, they treated such an eagerness to die as the strange result of obstinate despair, of stupid insensibility, or of superstitious frenzy. Unhappy men, exclaimed the proconsul Antoninus to the Christians of Asia, unhappy men, if you are thus weary of your lives, is it so difficult for you to find ropes and precipices? He was extremely cautious, as it is observed by a learned and pious historian, of punishing men who had found no accusers but themselves, the imperial laws not having made any provision for so unexpected a case, condemning, therefore, a few as a warning to their brethren, he dismissed the multitude with indignation and contempt. Notwithstanding this real or affected disdain, the intrepid constancy of the faithful was productive of more salutary effects on those minds which nature or grace had disposed for the easy reception of religious truth. On these melancholy occasions, there were many among the Gentiles who pitied, who admired, and who were converted. The generous enthusiasm was communicated from the sufferer to the spectators, and the blood of the martyrs, according to a well-known observation, became the seed of the church. 
But although devotion had raised, and eloquence continued to inflame, this fever of the mind, it insensibly gave way to the more natural hopes and fears of the human heart, to the love of life, the apprehension of pain, and the horror of dissolution. The more prudent rulers of the church found themselves obliged to restrain the indiscreet ardor of their followers, and to distrust a constancy which too often abandoned them in the hour of trial. As the lives of the faithful became less mortified and austere, they were every day less ambitious of the honors of martyrdom, and the soldiers of Christ, instead of distinguishing themselves by voluntary deeds of heroism, frequently deserted their post, and fled in confusion before the enemy whom it was their duty to resist. There were three methods, however, of escaping the flames of persecution, which were not attended with an equal degree of guilt. First, indeed, was generally allowed to be innocent, the second was of a doubtful, or at least of a venial nature, but the third implied a direct and criminal apostasy from the Christian faith. A modern inquisitor would hear with surprise that whenever an information was given to a Roman magistrate of any person within his jurisdiction who had embraced the sect of the Christians, the charge was communicated to the party accused, and that a convenient time was allowed him to settle his domestic concerns and to prepare an answer to the crime which was imputed to him. If he entertained any doubt of his own constancy, such a delay afforded him the opportunity of preserving his life and honor by flight, of withdrawing himself into some obscure retirement or some distant province, and of patiently expecting the return of peace and security. A measure so consonant to reason was soon authorized by the advice and example of the most holy prelates, and seems to have been censured by a few except the Montanists, who deviated into heresy by their strict and obstinate adherence to the rigor of ancient discipline. The provincial governors, whose zeal was less prevalent than their avarice, had countenanced the practice of selling certificates, or libels, as they were called, which attested that the persons therein mentioned had complied with the laws, and sacrificed to the Roman deities. By producing these false declarations, the opulent and timid Christians were enabled to silence the malice of an informer, and to reconcile in some measure their safety with their religion. A slight penance atoned for this profane dissimulation. In every persecution there were great numbers of unworthy Christians who publicly disowned or renounced the faith which they had professed, and who confirmed the sincerity of their abjuration by the legal acts of burning incense or of offering sacrifices. Some of these apostates had yielded on the first menace or exhortation of the magistrate, whilst the patience of others had been subdued by the length and repetition of tortures. The affrighted countenances of some betrayed their inward remorse, while others advanced with confidence and alacrity to the altars of the gods. But the disguise which fear had imposed subsisted no longer than the present danger. As soon as the severity of the persecution was abated, the doors of the churches were assailed by the returning multitude of penitents, who detested their idolatrous submission, and who solicited with equal ardor, but with various success, their readmission into the society of Christians. Notwithstanding the general rules established for the conviction and punishment of the Christians, the fate of these sectaries, in an extensive and arbitrary government, must still, in a great measure, have depended on their own behavior, the circumstances of the times, and the temper of their supreme as well as subordinate rulers. Zeal might sometimes provoke, and prudence might sometimes avert or assuage, the superstitious fury of the pagans. 
a variety of motives might dispose the provincial governors either to enforce or to relax the execution of the laws, and of these motives the most forcible was their regard not only for the public edicts, but for the secret intentions of the emperor, a glance from whose eye was sufficient to kindle or to extinguish the flames of persecution. As often as any occasional severities were exercised in the different parts of the empire, the primitive Christians lamented and perhaps magnified their own sufferings, but the celebrated number of ten persecutions has been determined by the ecclesiastical writers of the fifth century, who possessed a more distinct view of the prosperous or adverse fortunes of the church from the age of Nero to that of Diocletian. The ingenious parallels of the ten plagues of Egypt, and of the ten horns of the apocalypse, first suggested this calculation to their minds, and in their application of the faith of prophecy to the truth of history, they were careful to select those reigns which were indeed the most hostile to the Christian cause. But these transient persecutions served only to revive the zeal and to restore the discipline of the faithful, and the moments of extraordinary rigor were compensated by much longer intervals of peace and security. The indifference of some princes, and the indulgence of others, permitted the Christians to enjoy, though not perhaps a legal, yet an actual and public, toleration of their religion. End of chapter 16, part 4